probability that one or more team members may be infected by intruder organism. 75%. If intruder organism reaches civilized areas, entire world population infected 27,000 hours from first contact. Welcome back to The Thing Minute Podcast, where we discuss John Carpenter's 1982 science fiction horror masterpiece, The Thing, one minute at a time. I'm Harper W. Harris from HarperWHarris.com, and joining me for the last day of the week is... Alexander Morrison, GeekRex.com. Awesome. Thanks for uh, for finishing out the week with us, man. No problem. Thanks for inviting me. So, um, today we're talking about Minute 60. That's right. We're an hour into the movie at this point. Uh, which minute 60 begins with Childs yelling uh, bullshit and then ends a minute later with um, Gary beginning to turn around with his gun at, at the crowd. And we don't, we don't know what's going to happen at that point. We, that's, that's the end of the minute and the end of the movie. <laughs> um, yeah, so this, this minute begins with, with them kind of continuing that argument uh, that we saw break out in yesterday's minute. And um, yeah, I like that as they're all kind of fighting, even Fuchs, who we, we kind of talked about, has been you know, kind of reserved and most of his conversations have been very kind of intimate ones with McCready and, and kind of, you know, quiet conversations. Even Fuchs is getting uh, angry and, and yelling because he's he's trying to defend Copper about that he made the test and why would he have, you know, tried to destroy what they needed to do the test. So every, at this point, everybody except for maybe, I don't think we saw Nalls or Norris, you know, start to get start to yell at anybody, but Nalls may have been the first person to grab Clark when they, uh, when I looked at him, but yeah, pretty much everybody in the group at this point has kind of joined in the fray. And then, uh, right after that, they hear, they hear something and then they realize that, uh, there, somebody has escaped. So it is very much that kind of mob rule where they're like, you know, they're all attacking each other. They don't know where to place their blame. They're just trying to find somebody. And then they realize somebody's run off. So there's a new kind of focus for everybody to, uh, to place their, their fear on. So yeah, so let me get this nice. We got a nice, a long take of uh, following behind windows as he runs down this hallway, which is this exact same hallway that we had a very similar shot earlier in the movie of um, when McCready bursts in to go find uh, uh, where he heard the gunshot from, which ended up being Blair destroying the radio room. But um, that shot, we get all these kind of cuts back and forth from different you know, from in front of McCready and behind. But this one, we just get this long take following him behind. And it's kind of a quiet, it's almost a quiet moment after this big argument that's been going on. And I I never really noticed it before, but I I really love the way that shot really kind of builds up tension because you know the rest of them are right behind him, but we don't hear them at all until until just a few seconds before they finally show up. And it's almost like we're rooting for him to grab grab that gun and grab the the ammo and get ready because we know in any second now the rest of the group is about to descend on him. Yeah, the the loyalties shift very quickly in this movie. This is also, I believe, I'm not 100% sure, but I think it's the same hallway that the dog walks down Mm -hmm. at the start of the movie too uh, when it first infects somebody. And so, yeah, they get a lot of use out of this hallway. But I also, I do like that... um, the hallway is a you know kind of persistent thing that you keep coming back a, per- a persistent like visual thing that you keep coming back to that 
starts off very eerie and gets more mundane as it goes, you know, like, but in each one, it gets more tense. It gets more, uh, things are going worse and uh, things have gotten crazier. But yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, loyalty loyalty is shifting quickly here with who we're siding with. Um, uh, one of the things we talked about a few episodes ago was how Carpenter maybe plays a little bit unfair with who gets turned when. And because of that, we don't know. And so we don't know if Gary or Copper or Clark or uh, Windows. We don't we don't know if any of these people are, you know, are what. And that makes it incredibly tense when there's a standoff because what what is a good outcome here? What what do we what do we want to see happen? Right. Yeah, it's it's not kind of your typical movie uh, Mexican standoff where the good guys, you know, got a gun on the bad guy and they're both kind of, you know, at a standoff position where, you know, just less than 30 seconds ago, half the group was uh, was accusing Gary of being not a not a person anymore, that they think he might be a creature from outer space. And now in now in this minute, they're all standing behind him while he holds a gun on somebody else like they, they're suddenly kind of on his side almost. Um, so yeah, you're right. I mean, the, the, the loyalties are sh- shift so quickly because they don't really have anything to stand on. They don't know why they're really accusing anybody. They're just trying to, you know, throw that blame out as quickly as they can, because they're all just afraid of being accused themselves. Yeah. I think, I think it plays well into what we were talking about last episode with that kind of red scare mentality, because kind of what they're all trying to do is both be the biggest true believers, uh, the one who is you know defending the faith, while also not doing anything that makes them look suspicious. And what we've already seen is that for Clark, there's nothing he can do that won't make him look suspicious at this point because he has been put under suspicion. By definition, he is now a suspicious person. Yeah. But uh, as we see with Windows uh, here... He breaks, he snaps, uh, he runs for the gun, um, which, you know, totally rational thing to do, but it puts him under suspicion. It makes him stand out. And what you don't want to do at this point is, uh, is stand out in this group. You want to, you know, be Nalls. I don't think that anybody accuses Nalls of being the thing at any point. Yeah, he might um, be the only one. <laughs> yeah, uh, he at no point is anyone terribly suspicious of Nalls. And part of that is because he doesn't stand out. He goes along with everyone. He, whoever the group turns on, Nalls turns on. So it's one of those moments where you really see that the worst thing you can do is anything that draws attention to yourself. Yeah. And, and, and especially if that bring, if, you know, in addition to just drawing attention to himself, he's in, trying to introduce weapons into the, into the problem too. Um, which, you know, as we talked about yesterday, just infinitely makes things worse because they, now there's the threat of violence is so much more, um, uh, so much more is at stake when a, when a gun is involved than when, instead of them just kind of, you know, fist fighting each other that, uh, now, you know, you know, their lives are at stake instead of just being, you know, having to defend themselves. Yeah. As we'll see a little bit later with McCready, when you don't have a gun and someone attacks you, you subdue them. When you don't have a gun or when you do have a gun and someone attacks you, you kill them. And it's totally rational to do. Uh, You're defending yourself, 
but the outcome is infinitely worse. As we'll see, you know, he ends up uh, killing someone who could have been an ally because he could very easily kill that person. And that's something that this movie does really well is kind of show how, um, you know, again, uh, having these weapons is very comforting to the person who has it, but it does not, uh, it makes the situation uh, much more difficult with everybody else to calm down in. And these people are not doing well with stress. They are not, they are people that you want to calm down, not people that you want to rile up. (laughs) Right. And yeah, it is kind of interesting. You know, I don't, I don't think of this movie as a as a big gun movie because there really isn't a lot of. Um, although earlier in the in the podcast we we were counting gunshots because I was surprised at how many there were so that somebody had listed in the trivia because you know you always think about like the flamethrower and things but the 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 gun is actually pretty important in this movie and uh, the more I think about it I wonder if if Carpenter was trying to say something I, I know he's he's pretty um, liberal in his politics but I don't know about his stance on you know, gun control or anything like that. And certainly a lot of his movies have a lot of, you know, pretty um, inconsequential gunfire. I mean, it's something like Escape from New York is is full of just, you know, shooting people up. <laughs> but this movie seems much more careful about that. And I wonder if maybe he's trying to, trying to say something with that. Yeah, you know, it reminds me a little bit of um, Assault on Precinct 13, which was one of Carpenter's earliest movies. That was yeah. uh, 76, I believe, right? I think so, yeah. That sounds right. One of the things that that movie uh, also highlights is, um, uh, I don't know how how well you remember it. I but, just saw it for the first time a couple of weeks ago, actually. Oh, so, did you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love Assault on Bruce. It was Precinct. great. Yeah, I loved it. It's, it's a fantastic movie. But the thing that kicks all of that off is a gang gets a number of guns. The LAPD uh, ambushes them and shoots them all to death. Then one of the gang leaders who is now on a vendetta, uh, one of the warlords, as they call themselves, <laughs> uh, shoots a child to death. And that is that is kind of the defining moment, is this circle of gun violence. And I think one of the things that's interesting about guns in The Thing is guns don't seem like they would do a lot to the thing, uh, what yeah, everyone yeah. does to kill it, uh, what they all realize pretty early on that you have to do is use fire. Fire is the only thing that kills it. The purpose of a gun, the reason Nalls or not Nalls windows goes for the gun is comfort. It makes him feel better. It doesn't actually offer any protection. It doesn't make him safer. And it in fact ends up making him much less safe and making the group less safe, mm-hmm. but it makes him feel in control and that's what he's seeking out there. And I think that that's kind of a persistent thing. This is one of the few, uh, well, it's common in horror movies, but when you think of like horror action, right, it's always everyone shooting everything with guns uh, up to the point in something like Underworld, right, where they're like, wait, guns don't actually hurt vampires. What about guns that shoot sunshine bullets? <laughs> Um, uh, and so they come up with these absurd excuses to, you know, like give them that sense of control. Mm-hmm. And I think what John Carpenter does really well is say without judgment, like he, you know, this is not, I'm not, I'm not trying to make this out like an anti-gun, you know, screed of his or anything like that. Sure. But what he shows is that it is primarily 
a comfort thing. It is not a safety thing, but a comfort thing. And sometimes comfort doesn't actually make you safer. Sometimes it does the exact opposite. Sometimes it makes you comfortable when you shouldn't be. Yeah. And I think you can apply that as well to to Gary here, who, you know, we see in the very beginning of the movie, he shoots somebody because he has to, because this this crazy Norwegian person is shooting everyone else in their camp. And so he, he in self-defense, he takes that guy out, but he clearly, it's a int- very interesting scene because he does that in a very kind of, um, that scene is, it's very much like a Western, like he's, he looks like the cowboy hero where he, you know, bursts out the glass and, and shoots him dead in one shot. But then immediately after that looks extremely upset about it and not, you know, and, and when, when somebody else calls him out about using his pop gun, he, he looks kind of embarrassed about it. You know, it's something he's definitely not comfortable with, but then here, you know, uh, you know, just a day or two later in, in the movie movie's timeline, you know, now that he's got a gun and the, the, paranoia has kind of set in he literally like gary who's been this kind of reserved person literally says i'll put this right through your head to windows (laughs) which is is like such a change in his kind of personality it's so much more aggressive than we've seen gary be through the entire movie then you know it definitely feels like the the gun plays a role in, in that kind of you know change in his his demeanor too yeah definitely so right so as as they're kind of in this standoff i really like this moment where you know, once again, McCready, the uh, I like to call him the, the drunken helicopter pilot, steps in <laughs> to uh, to save the day. So I, I I thought this was kind of interesting that I never noticed before. This kind of I don't know if it's like a negotiation tactic that he's using. It's interesting because he's talking at first. He's talking to Windows and saying like nobody has to get hurt. I think you should put the gun down. And then he he suddenly turns his turns his remarks to Gary. When he says something like, you know, uh, you don't want to hurt anybody, Gary, right? After the entire time he's been kind of, it's almost like he makes it seem like he's on Gary's side and then at the last second kind of, you know, places the blame on Gary too, which is kind of interesting. So it's it's like he he's not taking sides um, and, and does kind of place himself in a position of leadership for the group there. Yeah, and it, it's interesting. I think one of the things that's striking uh, is... I had mentioned earlier, just, you know, on Twitter, one of my all-time favorite scenes just in movie history is uh, McCready playing chess at the beginning of this movie Mm -hmm. because it's such a great moment of showing someone who is smart and in control until the moment it looks like he's about to lose and then he's willing to burn the game down rather than concede. And I think that one of the things this movie does really well is pretty much everyone defers to McCready here throughout most of the early movie. You know, like, even in the uh, room where all the tension was, no one was turning on McCready. And no one turned on him after he left Blair by himself. And no one turned on him and all that. Like, McCready is a rock-solid presence here. But as we'll see later, as soon as they do start turning on him, he will burn them down. And uh, I really like the calm and controlled, like nobody has to get hurt. Like, let's all be, let's all think about this rationally, McCready, to the second he loses that authority, he is like, I've got a stick of dynamite and I will fuck any of you. Yeah, that's really interesting. I never made that kind of 
connection with that that parallel that that very it is very much the same with the chess game where it is like you know the game of figuring out who's who and and when when he when everybody turns on him he immediately is about to pour that whiskey into the computer again <laughs> and yeah. then just blow everybody up rather than lose that control it's that's a great read i never thought about that well in two lines there he goes from like something like getting a little ahead of yourself to cheating bitch right and that's that's kind of his arc for the movie <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I never thought about that. That's yeah, and it's it is interesting that you know they there's a lot of places in this movie where if you look at it kind of objectively, it's like why are they all like putting their trust in him? <laughs> like why <laughs> why is this guy the one that they're all kind of deferring to? But yeah, I mean, I think it is the personality that his character has is that very kind of calm and in control. And like we've mentioned in a lot of uh, scenes earlier in the movie, too, that he is kind of the guy who will just take care of things that need to be done and and can do it kind of emotion without emotion um, in some cases, like with Bennings and everything. Yeah, he's the guy who's willing to go up when everyone else is like, no, it'd be crazy to go up right now. He says, no, we need to know. Like he is, I mean, he's Kurt Russell in the 80s. Like Kurt (laughs) Russell in the 80s is the epitome of a certain kind of masculinity and even though he is, a, as you say, as you say frequently, a drunk helicopter pilot uh, <laughs> on the edge of nowhere, almost certainly because he's fucked something up in his life, Kurt Russell exudes something. And that's something that I think John Carpenter realized and satirized more and more as the career went on mm-hmm. from this to, was was Escape from New York before or after this? That was just before this. Yeah, so like, Escape from New York, where he is like very clear action hero, to this, where he is, but he kind of fails, to something like uh, Big Trouble in Little China, which uh, we've mentioned before, and which if anybody listening to this hasn't seen, like watch it immediately. Mm-hmm. It, it's a fantastic movie. But the thing that's most fantastic is by that point, John Carpenter and Kurt Russell have realized like in all of these movies, people are deferring to Kurt Russell, not necessarily because of his competence but because he looks like kurt russell like (laughs) one thing that i've been struck by watching these five minutes really closely is he has gorgeous eyes like he is a beautiful (laughs) man and you look at him and you're like yeah okay i trust him and you shouldn't probably like he does not have any special knowledge or skills here but Kurt Russell just just has that special something that makes people want to follow him. That's right. Maybe maybe the uh, the key to all of this is that you know everybody wants to get with McCready, and that's why <laughs> that's why they all put it. They, they're just all kind of trying to win his favor. <laughs> I am legitimately like I am legitimately curious as to like what the fan fiction community for the thing is <laughs> because. I have a feeling that if the fan, like if like fanfic.net or archive of our own discover, like really got into the thing, Kurt Russell, like early to mid eighties, Kurt Russell would be like just the most beautiful man. To <laughs> there could certainly be some interesting theories about, you know, a bunch of men who are locked up and they don't know who to trust. And this, <laughs> this could have been a very different movie in their hands. I think <laughs> I will say, you know, I just went to uh, fanfic.net <laughs> and um, there are twice as many fanfics for The Thing compared to like, although this is fucking weird. There are three fanfics for There Will Be Blood. What? <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Like, so, I mean, like, 
okay, interesting taste going on here. <laughs> but there are 72 fanfics for the thing. Oh my like, God. This is definitely a movie that a certain subset of person has has realized like has a ton of potential. And as you said earlier, you know, there's a very clear reading about, you know, the AIDS epidemic in here. And I think that a combination of just like how attractive, not just how attractive Russell is, but the way that he's groomed and filmed Mm-hmm. and uh, the situation and the scenario and kind of the intensity of the feelings that these men have for one another yeah, uh, all kind of boil together in an interesting way. Yeah, most definitely. I can. It's funny. I, I never thought to, to look that up and see that. But yeah, it doesn't surprise me that it's it's a popular one for the fanfic community because, yeah, it is. It's certainly a um, a setup that is ripe with uh, with possibilities <laughs> between all these guys who are kind of holed up together. Yeah, so uh, since we're at the end of the week, um, I did want to mention, we've talked a little bit about, you know, some of Carpenter's other movies. We definitely uh, mentioned Big Trouble in Little China and Escape from New York, but I did want to ask, um, do you have any any other kind of John Carpenter movies that are particular favorites of yours or, or any of his that are that just really, you know, miss the mark or anything like that? What, what are your opinions of kind of his filmography? John Carpenter, I think, has a really interesting filmography because he just the sheer number of outright classics that he's made mm-hmm. is almost unparalleled. Uh, Assault on Precinct 13, Halloween, those were back-to-back. Yep. Escape from New York and The Thing were back-to-back. They Live. If any of you out there have not seen They Live... It is one of the most like politically relevant movies today. Mm-hmm. It's a fantastic movie about kind of the realization of hidden monsters that can surround you. And, you know, I mean, th- you can read it any way you want. Uh, I know that there was some news that some, some alt-right people were reading it as being like, oh, the Jews run the media. Mm-hmm. And John Carpenter had to come out and say like, no, the, you're incorrect um, <laughs> yeah kind of awesome uh, but um so i mean it's it's unfortunate that you can kind of it, it's vague enough that you can read it anyway but it is a great movie about kind of how the working class gets simultaneously manipulated and ignored in politics and as we talk and think about kind of the expanding wealth gap and all that they live i think becomes hugely hugely relevant uh, unfortunately uh, while I know that uh, Rowdy Roddy McDowell um, is the best he will, the best he's ever been in this movie, uh, <laughs> I think that this did call out for something like a new Kurt Russell, uh, or sorry, Roddy Piper. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, I didn't even uh, catch that. <laughs> uh, Roddy Piper, sorry. Um, but uh, this did call out, I think, for a new Kurt Russell. It's unfortunate that he was not in it. But uh, even with Roddy Piper giving a sort of uh, a little bit of a wooden performance at times, uh, it's a fantastic movie. And it does have one of the most famous fight scenes in film history. Uh, It is uh, hysterical (laughs) while also being um, just weird and tense and fun. Yeah, that scene is uh, incredible. It's like... I think it's like eight minutes long of basically just uh, just Keith David and and uh, Roddy Piper just beating each other up in an alleyway, and it's uh, it is amazing. Um, 
beating each other up over over Keith David's unwillingness to wear a pair of sunglasses. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> very true. It is a weird movie, but uh, I think that if anyone out there hasn't seen it uh, and I were to pick one John Carpenter movie, like, don't get me wrong, I love Assault on Precinct 13, all that, but They Live is underrated in how influential it is, I think. Yeah, I agree. And I think it pairs very nicely with this movie, too. Uh, I think the two of them go go together very well. Yeah. Cool. Well, yeah, I think that will... We'll probably do us for uh for this minute and this week um any anything you wanted to mention just kind of about the movie in general or anything we didn't get a chance to to talk about this week no um you know and this is one of my favorites as i said when i in my first episode a few days ago and i really think that a lot of people know that it's a it's an entertaining movie but there is a lot going on here, as I'm sure you've noticed if you've listened to 60 episodes of this minute by minute podcast. <laughs> but, um, you know, if anyone out there is interested in kind of like getting into thinking and writing seriously about um, storytelling, the thing is a great movie to do it with because it is wildly entertaining, but it also has the depth that you want to really, you know, plumb into its depths. Yeah, I, I would totally agree. It's, you know, it, it's it's got it's definitely got the same kind of depth as, you know, an art house movie or, or something that's, um, you know, full, you know, full of very obvious symbolism and things like that. But at the same time, is a movie that's extremely hard to kind of uh, sometimes to keep that kind of analytical side of your brain going because it is so entertaining and so engaging. Um, you know, it's a movie that every time I sat down to take notes on it for the podcast, I'd get about. 35, 40 minutes in, and then my notes would start getting less and less as I'm watching because I can't help but get get involved with the movie no matter how many times I see it. Yeah. So, um, yeah, thank you so much for being on this whole week, man. It's It's been really fun, for sure. No problem. Thanks for having me. Uh, look forward to seeing how the uh how the project wraps up. Uh, how many minutes is the movie overall? 109. All right. So you're you're more than halfway through. Yes, I am. Thank you. <laughs> I'm feel, I'm definitely feeling that halfway through feeling at this point. <laughs> yeah, I believe it. I believe it. So, um, yeah, but uh, yeah, I think I've mentioned to a few other other guests that um, I'm probably I'm trying to figure out exactly how to do it. But at some point, uh, I may be reaching back out to you to hear um, kind of your your quick take on the on the end of the movie and what you, what you think uh, either who you think is the thing in the in the final scene or or you know kind of your your general thoughts on on that scene. Just a couple minutes that I, I might uh, piece together for for kind of a last episode of the show or something like that, just so everybody gets a. Uh, gets a whack at that that iconic ending of this movie sounds good so um awesome well uh thanks again for for being on this week and i think that'll wrap us up for these five minutes and uh and the first hour of the movie um if you do like the show and you want to support us uh the easiest way to do that is to go to the thing slash amazon um that'll basically just take you to the amazon homepage. so um you know anything that you normally purchase through amazon you can do it that way and uh a small portion of what you pay gets uh, gets sent to the podcast at no extra cost to you. So that's an easy way to kind of help us out without really having to change or do anything special. But um, you can also donate directly to the show with the donate button that's at the bottom of the website at thethingminute.com. Every little bit that anybody donates is is hugely appreciated and, and helps cover the, the hosting fees and, and costs of, of the blog and things like that. So definitely appreciate anybody that does that. But uh, 
anybody that uh, is still human by Monday or still thinks you're human by Monday, make sure to come back for another week of the Thing Minute podcast. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please go to thethingminute.com. There you'll find the show notes with links to anything we talked about on this episode and lots of other resources on The Thing. You can also find us on Twitter at The Thing Minute and on Facebook at facebook.com slash The Thing Minute. But most importantly, subscribe, rate, and review us in iTunes so you'll never miss an episode. Check out other podcasts like this at moviesbyminutes.com and be sure to head over to starwarsminute.com to listen to the team that started it all. Thanks for listening, and until next time, this is Harper signing out. Harper signing out.